Okay, folks, here we go. Sorry for the delay. Welcome to What the F is Going On in Latin America and the Caribbean, Code Pink's weekly YouTube program of hot news out of the region. In partnership with Common Frontiers, Council on Hemispheric Affairs, Friends of Latin America, Massachusetts Peace Action, and Task Force on the Americas, we broadcast weekly on Code Pink YouTube Live. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Telegram, and now at radindymedia.com. Our guest today is um, Marco Castillo. He's the executive director of Global Exchange, and he also um, coordinates Nuestra Red, which we can talk about briefly too, uh, Marco. But we're going to talk to you this evening, everyone. Um, our episode is about AMLO. Um, visiting Washington last week, and the title of tonight's episode, AMLO Goes to Washington, the Mexico-US Bilateral Meeting in Review. And this will kind of serve as a follow-up to a conversation that some of you may remember we had with Marco last year when Kamala Harris was visiting Central America, in which she said to Guatemalans, do not come. So um, this is a bit of a follow-up to that, and we're really fortunate to have Marco with us this evening. Before we start our conversation, um, I want to share with all of you just a few um, antidotes, highlights from last week's visit to um, Washington. And I'll start with a quote because I want you all to read this great article that my uh, co-worker and uh, Code Pink um, co-founder Medea Benjamin wrote and had published in Jacobin today. And this is, a, I think, for a lot of us, um, particularly those of us outside of Mexico, this was a really... Um, a really profound um, image that we saw on social media last week. So let me share this with you. Um, on July 12, when Mexico President Lopez Obrador traveled to Washington, DC, his most exciting encounter for Mexicans, both in the US and in Mexico, was not his meeting with President Biden, but his impromptu encounter with well-wishers outside of his hotel room at the Lombardi. A video on social media of the encounter went viral. It showed the president, known by his initials for all of you, A-M-L-O, sticking his head out the window, blowing kisses, catching a bouquet of flowers thrown to him, and being serenaded by mariachi singing Amigo. Um, and the lyrics roughly translated from Spanish into English, you are my soul brother, a friend that in every way and day is always with me. Uh, so that's from Medea's article. Um, I encourage you all to read it. It's a wonderful, uh, informative, and and uh, and passionate uh, expression of his of the president's visit to Washington last uh, last week. Also last week, the meeting with Biden included agenda items such as prioritizing Mexico's sovereignty. Um, sovereignty being a major theme that we've been talking about in many um, episodes this past year. Uh, curbing migration by offering more visa options and, of course, inflation. And this past Monday, uh, President Obrador revealed that, um, that during uh, his D.C. visit, he gave a letter to President Biden in which he defended Julian Assange's innocence and renewed previous offer to grant him asylum here in Mexico. So a lot to talk about in this episode, Marco, and I'm so happy you had time to join us. It's always a pleasure to have you in conversation. And I think it's really important 
that our audience, and I think most of people viewing and listening um, probably know, but let's remind them that, um, that you are Mexican. And so that's why, <laughs> because well, you live in New York City, so, you know, <laughs> but it's so important. And I'm sitting here in Mexico City and Marco was actually from Mexico City. So um, it's really wonderful that you um, have time to share with us your insights um, about the meeting last week. And I think um, one of the things to me that made it so important was, and perhaps this was all diplomatically planned before the summit of the Americas in LA of June, um, in which um, President Obrador did not, not attend. He did send the foreign minister, Ebrard, but he himself um, did not go representing the presidential le level of diplomacy uh, for Mexico. So, uh, so let's talk um, about the importance of last week's meeting and um, what you think were some of the, the highlights and some of the most important things that we as a U.S. audience should be focused on and perhaps what sort of um, political activity we can formulate around it. You're already working on a number of great projects. Thank you, Terry. It's always a pleasure to be here with you and, and, and always talking to anyone uh, from both Pink great leaders, great fighters. We are in the same struggle and, and uh, thank you for letting me be with your audience. So yes, I am Mexican, born and bred in Mexico in the state of Puebla and, uh, and then Mexico City. And I've been in the US for over almost two decades, mm -hmm. having the privilege of being in this country uh, involved in organizing activism and advocacy for, for uh, Latin Americans in, in, in the US and abroad. But yeah, Mexico, obviously it's in my heart and what's happening in Mexico right now, it's fascinating for so many reasons that you have already explored, like explained. It's uh, the, the charisma that, that AMLO brings to the, to the country, to the region, the leadership, and and uh, and 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 also, you know, uh, the challenges that he is is facing, and 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 the and the trouble, the, the huge crisis that the region is is also facing in this moment right now, as a result of COVID nineteen, neoliberalism, war, and so many other so many other things. But to go to your point. Um, for so many years, for so many uh, decades, uh, Mexico uh, decided to uh, end its tradition of standing in solidarity and support with, with our brothers and sisters from Central and South America. Mexico uh, said no to the war during World War II, uh, Mexico has always stand in solidarity with Cuba, stood in solidarity with, with Nicaragua and El Salvador, uh, with the people of El Salvador and Nicaragua during those difficult times. Mexico was a shelter for Chileans and Argentinians during the dictatorship. But sadly, after the 80s, when neoliberalism hit the country, um, our presidents and, and, and Mexican governments just sided with neoliberals in the U.S., sided with the, with the most conservative uh, 
parts of, of U.S. politics. And so for, for this past, you know, since, since the 80s, Mexican presidents have kept silence in a lot of moments in what's happening in Latin America and have silently accepted and bow to the presidents of the United States, to the power of the U.S. Mexico lost a lot of its leadership. And now we have a president that took office in 2018 that ran his candidacy under a progressive platform who had already tried and competed in the previous uh, you know, elections and, and he was victim of fraud, we have to say this. He was a winning um, candidate since 2006. And so the country had a very deep institutional and electoral crisis since that moment until 2018, when finally, finally, the, the powers that were, you know, the 1% the that was holding power, uh, you know, surrendered and lost the battle and had to accept the undoubtable winning of AMLO. And now we have a president that is trying to go back to this tradition. And now he's been, you know, successfully establishing relationships across the, the, the continent. But not only that, he's been a leading voice in what's been happening in, in the recent history. You, your audience should be familiar with what happened in, in, um, in Bolivia with Evo Morales when he was a victim of a coup d'etat, that it was, you know, uh, kicked and, and out of out of office to to, to impose a fraudulent uh, individual than then trying to well they didn't try they actually prosecuted <laughs> and criminalized many of the members of the cabinet well AMLO played a very critical role in in, in putting uh, Evo Morales in a plane and, and keeping him safe from from what was a clear intention to hurt him, not only to imprison him. Some voices were, were saying that basically the, 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 the dictators that took power were trying to assassinate him. And, and the same happened with Cuba. Uh, AMLO has been a strong voice against the blockade. He's been speaking in favor of a new relationship with the US. And, and, and Mexico, by being such an economic strategic ally to the US, he basically brings hope and, and it's like fresh water to a region that felt that they were losing the battle. And now we're seeing a new momentum and, and, and the continent led by, by uh, someone like AMLO, who's, I mean, not led, but, but where AMLO is playing a leading role, that's for sure. And, and so uh, it's, it's really interesting, Terry, because when he started, when he initially took office, he said that he was against foreign relationships. He always used to say that the best foreign policy is domestic policy, mm -hmm. and he was going to be dedicating himself and, and basically being in the country. He said that he would most probably wouldn't ever travel outside of the country. That was his initial uh, idea. But then well, he sold the presidential plane, didn't he? Yeah. <laughs> kind of was a exactly. Okay. Yeah. One of his first actions were to sell the presidential plane. Yeah. And so, but, but the truth is that, you know, everything is so interconnected and, mm -hmm. and you know, his leadership immediately uh, was, you know, seen as, as 
as a great opportunity for so many countries across the region. And so, so um, I don't know, on, voluntarily or maybe involuntarily, he started to play a more important role in, 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 the, in the region. And now we are where we are. And, and so, yeah. I think it's fascinating that, um, well, two, well, a series of things um, that I saw being here in Mexico City um, last year, especially, well, in and out of Mexico City, um, July 24 of last summer was uh, the 238th anniversary of Simón Bolívar's birth, and the president gave a extraordinary speech at Castillo Chapultepec in front of many foreign ministers and other uh, notable foreign dignitaries, really laid out the vision and history of Simón Bolívar, which we don't learn about in North America. We do not learn about Simón Bolívar in North America, and there's reasons for that. But he laid out this the, the history and the vision of Simón Bolívar and and then, uh, and part of that vision was to push back from the South against the ex westward expansion of the United States. Yes. And, and then he beautifully segued into um, how the OAS as a regional institution has really um, digressed from any sort of national uh, or regional unity and that it's, you know, dominated by U.S. foreign policy. It was a it was a brilliant speech, I thought. And then after that, we, st you know, a lot of us sitting here in Mexico listening to it, and you would know this as well, people were pretty excited about that. But we, I, I know many of the people I was with, we thought, well, this is a fabulous vision. But then the following month, Mexico City's hosting the Venezuela dialogue, what we hoped would turn into, you know, several uh, multiple conversations, and that stopped with the kidnapping of Alex Saab. But we saw the Venezuela dialogues start here in Mexico. And then in September, AMLO reconvened Salat after a four-year pause. And it just seems like since last summer, there's just been this real evolution of or, or um, vision and Enter. I mean, he really injecting himself into building a vision for the hemisphere of the Americas, Latin America and the Caribbean specifically, but um, but not absent of the U.S., which I think is part of what his meeting last week was about, in my my opinion. But I'll ask you to comment on that. And really, really leading this uh, attempt to visualize and vocalize a vision for an integrated America. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's really profound, I think. And he has, he, I believe, has a really large, at least out, you know, maybe not so much in Mexico, and we should probably talk about that too. Uh, but certainly outside the country, he has a very large audience. And I believe that's because he does not, I mean, a lot of his ideas are fairly progressive and even some are fairly radical but his demeanor and his tone of voice is not that. And people, people listen to him. People yeah. listen to him. That is really a wonderful thing. Right. Well, um, the, US, the US needs to look closer at what's happening in Mexico mm -hmm. because um, 
you know, it's, it's, it's important to understand that nothing, nothing, it's going to happen when you let a country uh, in Latin America to have free elections, when you, when, when you let, you know, countries exercise their democracy, and the U.S. has always been very fearful of what's of of what of political leaders in the South, political leaders south of the border, and and it's important that we look uh, closer to what's happening in Mexico, cause cause no nothing has happened. He's been able to uh, be critical of a history of of of. A, you know, inequality in the relationship of the U.S. Mm -hmm. with other with other countries, but yet at the same time, he has been capable of maintaining uh, a functional and, and a prosperous relationship between the U.S. and Mexico. So one of the things that AMLO has said that it's also for me important to say is that um, instead of looking against the U.S., you know, like trying to create cohesion and, 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 and a stand against the U.S. Uh, he's always said, we need to come together to support the U.S. because we need a stronger U.S. because if, if uh, the U.S. collapses, then we will all collapse. So we need uh, a strong, you know, U.S., but we need the U.S., to be an equal partner with us. So yes. he's always speaking about a, a you know, an yeah. aggressive prosody between both. He's talking about equality. So this means that this should not be a threat to US, to the US at all in any ways in the press in the US. We're seeing every day more and more, you know, this narrative of being a semi-dictator, like an author, like in the mainstream media, it's trying to portray them as, as mm -hmm. um, as an authoritarian, and we know how that goes and, and, and yeah. what that works. Right. But we need to understand that this is an opportunity to shift, to change, to better the relationships from the U.S. with other countries, not only with Mexico, with the rest of the region. We saw that nothing happened in Mexico, nothing has happened in Honduras, and by respecting elections, free elections, democratic processes in the region, not intervening, letting the people speak, only good things can come. I mean, certainly Mexico has important challenges and AMLO is no, no hero for so many, many, many people in Mexico that are still waiting for justice, political prisoners in, in domestic prisons, uh, um, indigenous communities who's been fighting for autonomy and resisting uh, mining projects and, and hydroelectrical projects who've seen no justice from, from the AMLO administration. Um, obviously, uh, many human rights advocates and organizations that seen the failure of an immigration policy, which is a consequence mm -hmm. of the United States. Uh, but the truth is that at the regional level, the AMLO administration has been and a challenge, an opportunity for change that we haven't seen in decades. Strong mm -hmm. allies like, like Mexico, Argentina, and Central America coming together 
to denounce the way that the US organized the Summit of the Americas, that's history in the making. You know, yeah. uh, Latin American countries calling together the US for an end of the OAS three, four years ago, that would have been impossible to hear. So it is important to recognize what is happening right now geopolitically, what's happening in the, in the Latin American continent and find ways in the US to support and, 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 and help uh, this administration because it's not easy. It's, it's, they're facing many challenges, also many pressures from the right and from the 1% mm -hmm. that is trying to diminish his accomplishments and, and bring him down. Wait, there's so, gosh. Okay, I have tons of notes here. So <laughs> let me, uh, no, this is wonderful. And I think, um, so let's just, what you said about, um, you know, working with the United States and some, you know, some people would say, well, you know, why? And uh, we, we know the history of U.S. interventionism um, throughout Latin America and the Caribbean, and it's quite heinous. And, and, it's, and it's been quite frequent, especially since the end of World War II. The, and this is one of the things that I find really admirable, actually, and hopeful is that when you mention that full regional integration, including the United States, but I, my sense is integration with the United States as equals, which would mean the United States is gonna be required to recognize each country's sovereignty, individual national sovereignty, which also can be extrapolated to mean natural resource sovereignty as well, which we can come back to the lithium and what's happening here in Mexico and the lithium triangle and the Southern Cone and the Southern Command's comments yesterday, I think, about natural resources. Um, but this is gonna require this integration uh, of a region as equals, which has something that's been needed, I would argue for 500 years. This is gonna mean an evolution is gonna have to happen in the United States. And that's, you know, that's where my work and my coworkers and friends, that's where our work is gonna be so important because it's not gonna be easy to change this paradigm of the United States. And, and still people refer to Latin America and the Caribbean as well. It was the backyard, now it's the front yard. And I mean, you know, <laughs> it's our yard, but it's gonna mean an evolution. Uh, yeah. And not, right? It's, it's, it, it, it's gonna need, it's gonna need to, and thank you for your question or your comment. Uh, it's going to need a lot of doing, but yeah. also a lot of undoing. There are a undoing, lot of things. Yes. There are <laughs> yes. a lot of things that the U.S. needs to stop doing, stop fearing, yes. stop assuming, and start believing. So, mm -hmm. so the U.S. Uh, foreign policy towards Latin America and towards most of the world—it's uh, based in fear, fear, and and based in fear of, and and constant feeling threatened by others and, and by new energies, new movements, new leaders, always being afraid of. And, and it was what, very reactionary. Any government pretty much yes. that has tried to be revolutionary, progressive, yeah. it, it gets toppled in yes. one form or another by the United States since so 1945. Seeing, yes. 
That is correct. In 1945. Very so with the with the AMLO administration, we gotta we gotta understand that that you know after after Canada, after Europe, Mexico would be one of the most important relationships the US has because we shared a border, a long border. It's it's you know, we 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 have some of the most economically dynamic borders in the globe, if not the most. So it is crucial for the U.S. And, and so, I mean, seeing this happening and seeing someone like AMLO and in the presidency, it's a clear proof that nothing happens if the U.S. stops, um, stops trying to intervene elections because of fear uh, and, and let the people speak things will be better for everyone. So it will take a lot of trust. It will take a lot of taking the foot away from the region back and changing the investment that they're putting in military intervention and intelligence and start putting that money in changing the economic formula that has created all this poverty that has put us in this situation. So... Let's talk a little bit about the, the U.S. military uh, and and the related poverty, because the poverty is not just within the United States. It's created poverty in many places around the world. But this is one of the things that um, with immigration, the militarization of the U.S.-Mexico border and the militarization of the Mexico-Guatemala border. Yeah. And... And, and this is done, and maybe this is not, maybe this word is too strong, but you know, it's complicit between Mexico and the United States. There's that understanding and, um, and financing of it. And that's, uh, that's tough. That's tough on people here in Mexico. And I don't think enough people in, in the United States really understand. And of course we would have to do an entire episode on root causes of migration, which we touched on um, last year. There's, I mean, that's a whole nother thing that you'll have to come back and unpack with us. Yeah. Because, and then we, and we can promote some of the work that you're working on too, the Peace Summit for next summer and all of yeah. those great projects. Um, but this militarization and really, uh, and this exporting of militarization by the United States to control the movement of people is really, uh, and unfortunately, that's the Mexican government has been complicit in that. And what do you see the AMLO government wanting to undo that or attempting to what, what do you, what's the vision there? And, and is that part of what the conversation in DC was about last week? Right, right, right. Well, thank you for that question. Uh, Terry, I didn't, so, I didn't um, word it so well. I apologize. <laughs> no, no, no. No, I think it's great. Um, so, um, let's see. The we we saw uh, the huge mistake that the so-called war on drugs uh, had, the terrible consequences that it had in the U.S. and in the region in the '60s, all the way. Mm -hmm until 2012 when the war on drugs was declared also in Mexico. We saw 
millions of lives lost. And not only that, but with time we learned that there was no such war against drugs. It was a war against people. It was a, a war against uh, free societies, free and independent societies. Unfortunately, the next step of that war has been the war on immigration, the war on immigrants. It's a, it's a new politic, geopolitical strategy that has the intention of counterfighting the, um, the consequences of the poverty that the US and neoliberalism mm -hmm. caused in our countries. Mm -hmm. After years of mining, over-exploding people, sucking resources from the region, now, now they, are, they are fighting so that those who are fleeing those conditions do not make it to the US. But also they're doing it because it allows the US and other countries to expand militarily-wise mm -hmm. and also allows the US to have personnel and have a foot in the US and also, it's an it's it's um, unfortunately it's a huge it's a huge business migration. Yes. It's a huge yeah. legal and illegal business. There's a lot of going on behind bars. It's more profitable these days to smuggle a person than drugs. In 2022, wow. the business of business for criminal organizations is smuggling people. It's better business than drugs right now. So wow. unfortunately, AMLO takes office right in the middle of this, of this uh, regional policy from the US. And he gets caught on, under the fire of, of Trump with, uh, with, with former president Peña Nieto. And, 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 and in order for him you know, to be able to start his administration, he, he negotiated certain terms. He thought that he could sacrifice um, migrants at the expense of, you know, creating minimum stability for him to take office in Mexico. He was successful in, in calming the tension that the, the Mexico had with the U.S. in the moment in 2018 when he took office. But, but sacrificing immigrants was a big mistake that yeah. has forced his administration to continue being being the guardian of the U.S. border and a bad guardian, a guardian that has been playing the role of, of, of police and putting military out in the streets and, and border uh, points. And it's been a disgrace. It's been hundreds of lives lost in this past years thousands of people who've been victim of all kinds of crimes along the border. And it's a tragedy of tragedies. We've never seen this situation in decades. So yes, what we're seeing right now, it's a trap that AMLO, it's very difficult to understand how he can possibly get out of. It's a trap that he accepted when he took office. And, and it's, it has a huge huge cost. But the problem is, the problem is, Terry, as we've said before, is if we don't change the thinking in the White House, in Washington, mm -hmm. this kind of situations are going to continue happening because the U.S. has the political and economic power 
to force Latin American countries to accept this policies. We've been forced. Mexico is depending on many, many things from the U.S. So uh, we need to change this in the United States. We cannot be applauding these policies just because they are safe for our country, safe or putting put in our borders, you know, in a safer uh, uh, situation. That's that's BS. That is not true. Factually, every all numbers have shown that the situation at the border is more dangerous for everyone, border mm-hmm. residents, immigrants, and all communities. Ecological devastation is happening, and and th- we've we've come closer than ever to to the highest numbers of human rights violations that we've seen in Mexico-US history since the worst moments of our relationship. So it's a bittersweet moment. AMLO should trust in, uh, you know, migrant communities in the US and, and, and their allies, progressive allies across the US, be more bold, stop doing the dirty work for the US and, and take a next step and we as a U.S. society should be ready to support, uh, you know, the AMLO administration in fighting back and saying no more. AMLO should be saying no more, no more of playing the role of, 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 the, uh, of the anti-immigrant um, police officer that the U.S. wants uh, Mexico to play. Would you, um, well, I guess let me, how should I say this? Because there's a number of things I've seen here, political activity here, specifically in Mexico City, um, with organizing uh, Mexicans in the exterior, particularly through the party, Morena party, organizing and and in the in the US exterior specifically because it is such a large population is that i mean is the support there i mean you you just said uh, we need to support the president onlo president um, is that you know it, it seems to me it, it's a real possibility to educate organize and push from the inside and from the outside the Mexican population, yeah. And the president needs that support. I mean, he kind of, that's how movements and parties work, right? That, that, that wind beneath the... Yeah. No, I mean, that's why I insist the U.S. needs to look closer at what's happening in Mexico. We Mm -hmm. need to make a change in the U.S., but for our own sake, for our Mm -hmm. own benefit not only to help Mexico, Terry, we need to do it for ourselves. The yes. truth is that a great majority in the United States yes. of America are sensitive to the issues that the region is it's going through right now. And, and, and uh, you know, uh, I'm sure that we're ready for a change also in the U.S. And we need mm-hmm. to learn from, from Mexicans. We need to learn that, you know, we can have a progressive president and nothing happens. The economy didn't collapse. The life <laughs> continuing. So many good things happen. We, we yeah. it is possible to have governments in the United States, in Europe, and all across the world that say no more to intervention. Yes to autonomy. Yes to radical democracy. 
So we need to listen more. And number two, we need to be in support of Mexico because if Mexico does well, the U.S. is going to do even better. So we need to support the U.S. We need to provoke that regional wave that it's already happening in Latin America to arrive to the U.S. We need more leaders in the movement to be, you know, understanding of what's happening in Mexico and be active in the U.S., not only immigrant communities. This is something that's not only, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, something that Mexicans abroad should be doing. All immigrant communities should be doing and everyone in the U.S. should be in support because the wave that it's coming from the South, it's a wave of better change. It's, it's what the people, not AMBLO, what the people the that people. are voting for this president are demanding, are, mm-hmm. are you know, radical Democrats who are not afraid of the 1%, not afraid of putting an end to, you know, uh, capitalism or, or savage capitalism to greed yeah. and, and pollution and, and, and all of those things that have hurt our lives in our region. Not only Latin America is hurting because of it, the U.S. is hurting right now. You know, I was just learning how much the panic Pentagon's budget had increased mm-hmm. during the pandemic. And it has no comparison with, with what the people received and all the benefits that people received in the U.S. It's like the, the stimulus checks and all of those uh, programs are nothing compared to how much the Pentagon. So that, that's, that's, that's something that cannot continue. You know, you, um, well, no, I, 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 think, I think that may actually um, make more and more uh, people in the States the, the awareness it's every day that there's more and more money for the military and you know, no pu- access to public education, no healthcare, no, no decent public infrastructure. People are starting to connect the dots. And one of the things that you just mentioned about radical democracy throughout the hemisphere, I mean, you and I served as election obs- uh, observers in Honduras and other countries throughout. There was a whole series of elections beginning in Bolivia in October of 2000. Uh, 2020 and right on through um, throughout the hemisphere, right on through December of 2021. And to me, being in a number of those countries and watching the results we saw, with the exception, I would say, of the national or the legislative elections in Argentina, although with them assuming the presidency of the CELAC, maybe uh, we're going to see a slightly different evolution now out of Argentina. But um, I agree with you, the, the, the radical democracy, the, the election results, which people participated and voted for preservation of, or, or recapturing, recapturing or preserving national sovereignty, natural resource sovereignty, and people throughout the hemisphere voted for governments who were proposing an economy beneficial to the majority of citizens. And some of those economic plans were maybe one step to the left of center to revolutionary leftist economies. But there's, so there's a whole spectrum that emerged in the Americas last year, but it really was really, really clear, don't you think? I mean, it was really obvious what people voted for. In, Absolutely. In, it was, in, gen- they, in general, in, in Latin America, since the imposition of neoliberalism, 
by the hand of, of you know, uh, corruption and electoral fraud, the, 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 the continent and, and, and the United States Department of State knows this, the continent has been in constant conflict. Latin America has always said no to the neoliberalism, not to U.S. intervention. So this is a long fight that it took decades for, mm-hmm. for the 1% to you know, accept that there was no way out. They tried with electoral fraud. They've been trying mm-hmm. with, with interventions as, the, as they did in Honduras. And still, the resilience of people in Latin America said, no, we're going to continue fighting and make our voice heard. And there you have it. Both in Mexico and Honduras, you had such an overwhelming, you know, uh, number of voters supporting these candidates that mm-hmm. AMLO is one of the, you know, uh, most voted and, and better positioned uh, presidents in, in, in the globe, you know. And, and, yeah. and so, again, the U.S., Democratic Party needs to listen to what a majority is saying in the U.S. And we, as a majority in the U.S., need to get our act together and recognize that our voice can be heard and we can achieve things. We need to learn from the South. Yes, definitely. Definitely. And, and And the South is learning, is really good in this particular moment, learning from each other too, I, I would add, it's a unity that, um, and I think this, it's a unity that's really very clear um, among nations. And I think that was very um, evident in the SELAC summit here in Mexico City in September. There was a lot of conversation, some people, you know, the differences among how, the, how uh, domestic policy is handled and yet saying we need to rise above that, respect the sovereignty of the individual nations and find the common, you know, those things that unify all of us, particularly economics and work together uh, as, a, as a block of nations. And there just seems to be such a very special moment right now in Latin America and the Caribbean from which, and I fully agree with you from which the United States the, should be learning from. And that's going to mean people like you and me and all our friends <laughs> and family that, you know, we've got to spread that, this change that's coming because it is a change that would be beneficial for all of us Americans, North, Central, and South Americans. All of America. Yeah, sure. I mean, um, and, and, I don't, and I don't mean, and I really don't want to project the idea that things are great in Mexico and Latin America, that when we talk about this wave means that we have answers to all the problems. Mm-hmm. Absolutely not. We are facing- but it's a consciousness. It's a political consciousness, We're, we're right? facing huge challenges in the region. And, yeah. and if, if, if anything, the AMLO administration will be able to accomplish just the basic structure of what real change looks like. He is- you know, coming into power after seven decades, at least in the case of Mexico, of corruption and, and bad government. So it's going to take a while to get where we, uh, you know, to, to, to rest, to, a point, to get to a point where we can really rest and enjoy the fruits of our labor. Right now, 
the country. The, the reason why people like AMLO or Sumara Castro Empire right now is because the people are mad, are frustrated, mm -hmm. are suffering, are, are in, you know, in a very, very bad moment. And, and so um, it, it takes a lot of work. It will continue to take a lot of work. But one thing is for sure. The people have all the clarity that betting on bankers, we're not going to get any benefit. The U.S. needs to stop believing in traditional politicians, in bankers, and, and corporations as a way to solve the problems for the people. So, you know, that's something that 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 people across Latin America have very clear. You know, it's like we we don't think Amlo's perfect. We don't think Xiomara Castle will be perfect. There is a huge culture of corruption and impunity in the country. We have problematic military authorities. All of that. We have ecological devastation. We're facing all kinds of economic uh, crisis on top of crisis every day. But one thing is clear: we would we would be worse if we continue putting our destinies in the hands of neoliberals who have nothing but just distracted resources, overexploited and hurt the people of Latin America. Wow, beautiful. <laughs> I just, I, I just, I love your state, your, your vision and your experience and, and you're so good at, at um, explaining all of this to, to our audience, it's really, um, but it is, it really does come down to the banking, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, it really does come down to that whole financial sector and, and that sector, it, I mean, I would argue it's, it's not, it's neoliberalism is a modern form of it, but we've seen that in the hemisphere for 500 years, the control of banks and the control of, uh, you know, monarchies in some cases, autocratic government, it's been very, it's in many ways, it's still that same, well, it's that imperialist structure for Spain and the United States. And it really is, um, it, it really is um, a profound statement of the people that governments are being voted, democratically voted into power to push back. And I fully agree with you, with Mexico, with with Honduras, and now with, I think we could throw Colombia in the mix too now, with, with Petro and Francia being inaugurated August 7, that th th this is the first step. And, my, and you mentioned earlier that things have to be taken apart. There has to be a deconstruction first, right? I mean, here in yeah. Mexico, 70 years. So it's yeah. a, these first governments, and I think those of us, uh, particularly in the global north, that believe we are revolutionary and leftist, we are yet to have a revolution in, in our own countries. <laughs> so we have to be careful how we, how we uh, comment on countries such as Mexico, Honduras, and Colombia, that it is gonna take a deconstruction first, a dismantling first before moving forward. And that may take, that's definitely gonna take at least one administration and probably more than that before you know, there, there's a, a, an end product that is the vision and the dream with the yeah. first election. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. not going to happen overnight. And, you know, there's a, there is, there's a lot of, there is a lot of criticism of AMLO as you have 
have shared and via, you know, viable critique of what's happening, what's not happening. Shiamara Castro is going through the same. Uh, my gosh, Gustavo Petro's already is been harshly criticized by the left outside of Colombia for not being leftist enough. Yeah. What does I mean? You know, these these newly elected governments have so much to undo first, and I think. I don't think that can be emphasized enough. And that is what it's going to take in the United States too. There's going to yeah. have to be a dis, an undoing of our previous way of thinking, of acting, of the systems um, are in place and how they work. That has to all be dismantled before you can even start moving forward. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. It's a, it's a huge, it's a huge, huge, huge challenge. Because yeah. in many cases, and I'm sure that it will be also the case of the US when we see change coming, you know, um, greedy corporations and, and uh, transnationals have, a, you know, accumulated such power that even if you take, uh, 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 if you win the presidency of a country like Mexico or the U.S., you wouldn't hold power. You win, you win, you win, you know, the, the, the government, but you don't win. You win the office. Because, because. <laughs> Many of this, you know, uh, members of the 1% club own, you know, yeah. have the power because they own governments. Right. They, they right. own the debt of, of many poor countries and they own uh, the, the arms, the guns, the, the, the souls the press. of so many, yes. Meaning people. So yes, it takes, it's gonna take, uh, it's gonna take a huge, battle and AMLO has had to uh, confront many of that. AMLO is being subject of, of yeah. you know, violent uh, criticism, uh, not only from the Mexican right. I mean, uh, Marco Rubio is, is on his back and, and mm -hmm. accusing him of, of so many nonsense and, uh, and the same with Ted Cruz and all of the, you know, mm -hmm. the U.S. right, which means that the corporations are are trying to, you know, bring AMLO down. So yes, it is complicated. It's it's not easy. But let me say, Terry, uh, before we run out of time, I think that are that are concrete steps and things that the U.S. Uh, can do, and and Latin America should be putting in place with the support of the U.S. And that is. We need to build a new multilateral institution that is respectful of every country's participation, that it takes each country as a vote, as a vote of dignity that, that has the same value as any other. We need to dismantle the OAS and we need a new alternative and the US can support that right now. And again, let me, I cannot stress this enough. It would be beneficial, not a threat to the US. Creating, recreating multilateralism in the region. Mm -hmm. It's one of the best things that I'm looking to accomplish and that Biden should be uh, supporting right now. You know, living a stronger, more democratic, uh, uh, multilateral organism or mechanism that allows the region to have permanent democratic dialogue. 
And we can and we must accomplish that. And that's why we are calling all, all sectors of U.S. and Mexican society, Terry, to, you know, uh, start this, this discussion in all corners of, of the U.S. and Mexico and then gather in February 27 next year, 2023, in Mexico City to have a binational conference for peace to build a binational agenda that will take both of our countries to the next to the next uh, uh, victory, to the next victory, which is a binational agenda that represents the will of a great majority. U.S. and Mexico have been brothers and sisters for decades. We are more than neighbors. We are family. Over 30 million Mexicans are living in the U.S. We have millions of U.S. folks living in Mexico. We are family. We literally have our children on the other side of the border, both. And in and, mm -hmm. and, and the U.S., we literally have a lot of our parents in Mexico living in Puerto Vallarta and Oaxaca, happily retired. So we need to see ourselves as one region. We cannot continue with this border uh, uh, perspective on things. That That is... Uh, that is that is old. That is archaic. That it's that doesn't solve anything. Wow, this is. I love this. Um, this is this uh, Cumbre de la Paz in February, and where can um, this is a really fabulous project for all of you um, in the audience. And so, where can um, the audience find more about the project, the Peace well, Summit? You, 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 and your audience were the first ones in listening about this. This has not been publicly announced. No, and I've sat in on some of the meetings. I will confess. Starting on July twenty-seven, Terry, when we kick off and announce the press conference, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna publish a website that it's psummit2023.org, where folks will be able to see all the different discussions that are gonna be happening, the different forums that we're gonna be having across the US in, in, in New York, in California, in Florida. And then we're gonna have dialogues also in at the Mexico-US border and in Mexico City. And then we, we're gonna end in February in Mexico City for this Binational Peace mm -hmm. Summit. Wow. So watch for that, everyone. And I, I really would love you to come back when this is officially launched and um, and let's do an episode, you know, let's basically do a, pre a little press conference promoting it because it's such a fabulous project. We want to get as many people there as possible, but I, I'm so thankful you had time to join us for this episode. I just always love talking to you and I love your insights and I, and I love how um, you articulate um, all the political and economic variables to our audience. It's just really, I always learn so much. I know our audience does, and I do. I, I learned so much from you, and I'm just so thankful for your time. Is there anything we failed to talk about or any one or two points that came out of last week's meeting in D.C. that should be you know, um, particularly highlighted? That I mean, pro we're probably leaving lots of things um, out, of, out, of the, out of the conversation, uh, but I, I think that it you know, I, I, I think that the message, it's pretty clear. And, and 
Biden and AMLO, for example, agreed on a 2.6 billion investment along the Mexico-US border. That's one of the outcomes of the recent conversation. And, and so that's where I want to put the question. Is there is yeah. this money going to go to more border security for more you know, mm -hmm. militarized technology? Is this money going to go to more you know, uh, immigration officers or border agents? Or is this money going to go to build more human rights uh, shelters across the border to make the asylum system much more effective and, and, and fast uh, for, for all the people that are waiting right now at the border? Is this investment going to be to, you know, better the, the ecological systems of the border? Well, that depends on how much we fight and we collaborate yes. on both sides of the border. You know, because yeah. probably the Biden administration is thinking on the first, but we, we the people, have the final word. So yes, I mean, we we should be motivated and inspired by what's happening in Mexico and in other parts of Latin America, and we should bring that inspiration and that energy to the U.S. Right now, it's a moment. November, it's the next step, yeah. and and we, you know, we we who believe in freedom cannot rest until it comes. Yeah. Okay, with that, I'll, I'll, let, <laughs> I'll close our program with those fantastic words. And um, I just wanna remind the audience that you've been um, listening to What the F is Going On in Latin America and the Caribbean, Code Pink's weekly YouTube program of hot news out of the region. And you can catch us um, on, in the evenings, uh, typically 4.30 p.m. Pacific, 7.30 p.m. Eastern. Um, this evening, we were so thankful to get Marco that we were more than, than uh, happy to change our time. Also, don't forget to catch uh, Code Pink Radio every Wednesday, every Thursday morning, excuse me, 11 a.m. Eastern, WBAI, New York City, WPFW, Washington, D.C. We're also on Pacifica radio stations in Houston and Los Angeles now. And both projects can be found on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. So be sure to catch us next week. And Marco, I really hope um, we have a follow-up conversation when the, when the Peace Summit gets launched, because um, I think that is a, it's a natural next step to share with our audience, um, uh, you know, as a, as a follow-up, uh, a continuation of this conversation. So thank you. I look forward to having you back. <laughs> thank you very much, Terry. Okay, thank you. Thank you, everyone. And we'll see you next week.